So um, I usually don't draw attention to my wardrobe accessories, but, uh, but I will this time. I'll make an exception, all right? Um, so I have uh, two fractures on this shoulder. Um, last Sunday afternoon, beautiful Sunday afternoon, I was on my bicycle wearing a helmet. I wish I could say that the roads were icy. I wish I could say that it was a pothole. I was actually on about the smoothest uh, dedicated bike path uh, in our county. I was there on uh, Prospect uh, south of Windsor in Savoy. You know, they just finished that street uh, not long ago. And um, I was on that smooth, dedicated bike path, and it was just beautiful outside, and I was biking along, and I saw a friend on the other side of the street, and I waved with my right hand. My friend waved back, and I thought, well, I'm going to go visit with my friend. So while in motion, I squeezed the left brake lever. In the United States, the left brake bike lever control the front wheel, and uh, it worked. And let's just say that I ascended. Uh, my friend said that uh, it was a graceful fall. Um, for a moment, I was suspended in midair, and actually, I remember thinking uh, while I was in midair, this isn't so bad, um, but then I experienced gravity. And uh, I, uh, I mean, I fell, I fell right on my back shoulder and uh, broke it in two places. Uh, went to the emergency room, uh, followed up with a doctor this week. Thankfully, no surgery is needed. I'm just going to be uh, with my friend here probably till Christmas. I'll tell you, though, folks, what hurt the most. You know, when you go, you get these after clinic summaries, right? Okay? After clinic summary. Uh, see the attached information. So I, here's the attached information. It's titled, Bicycling Advice to Seniors. <laughs> you you got to be kidding me. Really? Senior cyclists may be cycling for the first time in many years. They may not be accustomed to the ways that bicycles function in traffic. Well, apparently not. So anyway, that probably hurt my body the most. My pride. I think my pride hurt more than my shoulder. Which takes us to our teaching series today. We are studying Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, united in Christ. And the title of our message today is The Virus of Pride and the Antidote of Kingdom Identity. Say that with me. The Virus of Pride and the Antidote of kingdom identity. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And the church said, Amen. Amen. So several years ago, I received a copy of a ministry trade magazine. We get these at the office, and we don't pay for the subscriptions. They are published from the revenue of the advertisements that are inside them. But there are articles about doing ministry or the industry of Christian ministry uh, or methods of doing ministry, etc., etc. One article startled me, and I, even though this is, you know, eight years old, I keep it as an example of what we're not. The article is titled, How to Create, I'm not making this up, the article is titled, How to Create, Build, and Monetize Pastoral Fame. Subtitled, A Blueprint for Achieving the Kind of Life and Career Enjoyed by Society's Super Elite. The article starts with, you see or hear about pastor celebrities, and you probably wonder how they got to the top. Well, wonder no more. And then the article proceeds to uh, have a kind of a conversation with a book that's titled... Fame 101, Powerful Personal Branding and Publicity for Amazing Success. Uh, so here's a little cutout window that was in the article. Four Steps to Cultivate Fame. You going to write this down? Please don't. So we have a pastor who has talent and something to say on behalf of evangelical Christianity. What should a pastor do to cultivate fame for himself? Well, four steps. First, he needs an, a professional online presence for himself, his message, and his activities. Well, thank you, COVID. We now have three cameras. We're on Facebook now. Hello, world. Check that box. Second, he should definitely write a book because Americans elevate authors to a special status. It will open doors to speaking and the media that require author status for admission. Okay, that's in the needs to improve column. Third, this is my favorite. He should train and practice to become a professional speaker. The fees can be amazing. And effective communicators are rare and always in demand. Professional speaking can be learned and mastered surprisingly quickly. Which is why they are rare and always in demand. Huh? And finally, finally, he should familiarize himself. Notice all the he's pronoun, right? My goodness. Finally, he should familiarize himself with how to capture and keep the media spotlight, you know, 
fracture your shoulder, things like that. Because that's how to connect with thousands or even millions with his message. How to monetize pastoral fame. Now, no disrespect to anybody in marketing or sales. I get, I get product positioning and branding, etc. Uh, but I read this and I thought, is this what Christian ministry has become in the United States of America? Is this it? Really? Is this what evangelical Christian ministry has become in the United States? Here's the deal. This article could have been written by a member of the church at Corinth. We've been looking at the church at Corinth, haven't we? In A.D. 50, the Apostle Paul goes to Roman Corinth. Corinth is in Greece. But when Paul gets there, the Roman Empire has taken over that section. The Roman Empire is the superpower there in the first century. And the Apostle Paul goes to this colony, and it was a magnificent city of 80,000, the largest uh, colony there in Greece. Paul begins preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He pays for his own expenses. He starts a church, a Christian community begins to gather. He's there 18 months. And a, a congregation gathers in various house churches. And, you know, I always wonder, what was like the, the head count of that kind of uh, congregation. And the best number I can come up with from my research is 100, about 100, which really is significant uh, in that city, in that place, and in that time. Paul's there 18 months. He starts this church. He leaves, and another leader arrives by the name of Apollos. You can read about Apollos in the book of Acts, Acts 18 and 19. Apollos has this brilliant intellect. He is a persuasive preacher. He's a humble man of God. His preaching is logic on fire. But the Corinthians begin to divide into groups. Well, I kind of like Paul when he was here. No, I, I prefer Apollos better. And, well, I'm of Paul. Well, I'm of Apollos. And someone throws Peter's name in the hat. And th so they start critiquing and comparing and judging Paul versus Apollos versus Peter. And they start looking down on each other because of their personal preferences. And when the Apostle Paul gets wind of this, he's, he's just mortified because he and Apollos and, and Peter and the other apostles, they're brothers in Christ. They're, they're not at odds with each other. They celebrate each other's giftedness. And what we learn is that the Corinthians are divided by pride and by selecting their preferred apostolic preacher, they have pitted themselves against one another. Well, I'm going to choose my favorite preacher and then judge you based on my superior opinion. Oh, and their critiques 
Their critiques were more about the style of sermon delivery than the substance of sermon content. Now, where did they get this this inordinate preference for style over substance? They got it from their culture. Because in the first century, Corinth preferred loud eloquence over silent virtue. And theirs was a problem of pride. Their culture was proud. Their colony was proud. Rome was proud. Pride is, is a twofold evil. Pride is thinking highly of myself compared to others and thinking often of myself compared to others. Highly of myself, often of myself compared to others. And there's, there's always that compared to others because pride wouldn't know what to do if it sat in the room alone. Pride needs someone to compare itself to. That's what makes it hungry. And pride is always hungry. Pride never loses its appetite. Pride is always on the prowl. And the proud will always find something to be proud about. Rating, ranking, and caucusing around their favorite Christian leader or preacher that made, made the Corinthians feel good. Made it feel good about themselves. That way they could play the role of judge. You see what's happening? You see what's happening? Church family, evil will never sit on the sidelines and watch the gospel change a community. Evil will always push back. And so in 1 Corinthians, uh, chapters 1 through 4, Paul is just having this extended conversation confronting the Corinthian pride with the humility and weakness and power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul fights to correct proud thinking. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to meet me in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to read the entire chapter because what Paul is doing here is he is admonishing the Corinthians for their misplaced worldview of pride. And let me just front load the big idea here. Here we go. The antidote to pride is a kingdom identity. The antidote to pride is a kingdom identity. To disable pride, you must enable kingdom identity. To disable pride, you must enable kingdom identity. So as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I want you to listen for how Paul develops this big idea. This is how one should regard us. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. 
Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up In favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you have become kings. Oh, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world. The refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some of you are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? This is God's word. Amen. To disable pride, you must enable kingdom identity. To disable pride, you must enable kingdom identity. Could you hear the pride that Paul was confronting in those verses? And then 
Could you hear the identity words in those verses? Yeah, church. God has no use for pride. He, he can't use pride. He won't use pride. He doesn't use pride. The, the, the greatest threat to your spiritual formation in Christ is not your weakness. The greatest threat to your spiritual formation in Christ is your delusion of strength. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, you know, Beloved, pride is causing you to think wrongly about who we are as apostles and leaders, and therefore it's causing you to think wrongly about who you are, and most importantly, it's causing you to think wrongly about who God is. So here's who we really are, church. Here it is. Servant, scum, spiritual father. That's who we are. Servant, scum, spiritual father, spiritual parent. There it is. That's who we are. And Paul says that's who you need to be. <laughs> See, verse 16. Imitate me. See, Paul is not just telling the Corinthians and correcting their misplaced identity so that they can just know who the apostles are. Paul wants them to know who they are. I want you to imitate us, but you need to understand who we really are in the eyes of God. Servant, scum, spiritual father. So let's just walk through each of these identity images the first being servant. Paul says, I am the Lord's servant. Do you see that in chapter 4, verse 1? Paul says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. So Paul uses two words, doesn't he? First, first he uses a nautical word. Uh, servant there literally means under rower, under galley slave. Now, that's different from chapter 3, verse 4, when Paul used the word diakonos, deacon. This is yet another identity marker. You're an under, I'm an under rower. I'm a galley slave. So, a galley slave manned the oars of the boat. And so, a galley slave was the lowest of all the slaves. So the galley slave was servant to the slaves, and then servant to the ship's crew, then servants to the officers of the crew, and ultimately to the captain of the ship. Paul says we are servants of the captain, Captain Christ, Captain Jesus. And then he uses another word, stewards. Stewards, it's a word that means estate manager. Think Joseph in the book of Genesis, who was prime minister to Pharaoh. Think Nehemiah, who served as cupbearer to Artaxerxes. Estate managers, stewards, 
trustees are responsible for that which does not belong to them. And they therefore have one person to please. Just one person. Chapter 4 verse 2 says, this is who we are. I am the Lord's servant. I am the Lord's steward. Which is to imply, so church, I am your servant, but you are not my master. I report to the Lord. And then Paul writes one of the most liberating verses in Scripture. And I just, to have this verse embedded in my soul and to live it out. Remember, the Corinthians are proudly comparing and critiquing the apostles. And so Paul replies in chapter 4, verse 3. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. It's a small thing that I should be judged by you, Paul says. Now, now, Paul is not saying, well, I don't care about you. He's not saying, you don't matter to me. He's saying, I will not allow your pride-infested opinion of me affect my calling in Christ. I mean, think about it. These Corinthians had been Christians less than five years. You know, Paul, who'd been a believer, you know, 20-something years, Paul brought them to Christ, and now they're presuming to help him be a better apostle? (laughs) I don't think so. Paul says, your opinion of me doesn't change God's assignment for me. And then he says this, and this is what's surprising. Do you see that there in chapter 4, verse 3? He says, you know, it's a small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Isn't that interesting? So your opinion of me doesn't define me. And my opinion of me doesn't define me. I don't even judge myself. Verse 4, my conscience is clean, but that doesn't make me innocent. Verse 4 says, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. So just because my conscience is clean doesn't mean I'm innocent. It is the Lord who judges me, Paul says. So so on, on the day... The day of Christ's return, he will evaluate my work. And on that day, his and only his evaluation counts. And so Paul says, don't prejudge my work or anybody else's. Paul says to the Corinthians, I don't recognize your prideful yardstick. For you to assess my work assumes that you are a qualified assessor. You're not. God is. Now, church, let me clarify something. This church, uh, this, this verse, this verse does not exempt the senior minister from being evaluated by the, the church's governing board, okay? So, I, 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 I welcome the elders' annual evaluation of my preaching and ministry. I welcome, I, I want to hear their voices because they are loving, humble, candid servants, fellow under rowers. So it's not 
like the elders are on the deck of the boat and, and I'm in the belly of the boat and they're evaluating. Now they're with, they're, they're underneath. They're in the belly with me. And we are rowing together in the belly of this boat called Windsor Road Christian Church, a church that does not belong to us or me, and a church over which we have been appointed as managers for the time being. <laughs> and we are managers, not owners. And there in the belly of the boat, we joyfully row, faithfully serve, ceaselessly pray, and tirelessly disciple for Christ. And Paul says, that's what I want you to imitate. That's what I want you to imitate. Huh? And, and, and so this is evidence of your imitation of the shepherd's um, stewardship of what does not belong to them. This past week, uh, the church facility had ministry teams coming in uh, in you know, specific numbers, packing these gift boxes to be sent all over the world to children. And our ministry partners helped us as well. Uh, there was a uh, ministry group from campus called International Friends. You know, we had atheists here packing these boxes. We had Muslims here coming to a Christian church facility for the first time this past week, bringing the boxes in, stacking them here next to the cross. <laughs> Praise God. Yeah. Our, our co-workers at Cross Trail Outfitters were here. Uh, we had our co-workers at Jesus House uh, Mercy's Refuge, we had a homeschool co-op, uh, we had over a hundred volunteer slots, uh, we, 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 there's 668 boxes, that's the, that's the latest count, and I'm told there's even more than that, so God be praised. Oh, and let's thank God for the family worship night that took place just this past week on Wednesday night. It was a wholesome evening of praise and community. And, and let's not forget uh, God's generosity through this church family to our friends without addresses at See You at Home. So in just a few short weeks, over 1,400 individual prepackaged snacks were given, 80 thermal base layer sets were given, 107 sticks of deodorant and 70 pairs of socks and 8 pairs of gloves and a cozy hat and a partridge in a pear tree on top of that. So anyway, but uh, isn't that, it, God be praised, amen? God be praised. Yeah, you're, you're going to have to clap, okay? So anyway, yeah, that, that comes from a congregation um, and congregational shepherds, knowing who they are. We are under rowers, happily rowing together, Amen. and we are stewards of what does not belong to us. Amen. Paul says, Apollos and I aren't competitors. 
We're fellow servants. You're trying to use us as a means to make you feel superior between one another. Do not be puffed up with pride. Rather, be filled up with the Holy Spirit. Don't compare. Serve. Serve. That's verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. And it's at this point, church family, that Paul turns up the volume. Paul says, let me make this really clear about how silly you Corinthians look when you try to make celebrity pastors out of us and then segregate according to your favorite preacher. (laughs) You think you are experts in judging ministry brilliance? Actually, you're really just comparing samples of scum. Oh yeah. Now you heard that in the scripture, didn't you? Paul says, I am the Lord's servant. I'll tell you who else I am. I am the world's scum. Now, now brace yourself, church, because in verses 7 through 13, we hear very strong language. I'll call it apostolic sarcasm. Okay? Don't try this at home. Paul But Paul, Paul's trying to get through to this church that he loves. And and, and, and so he mocks their high and mighty pride. Verse 7, what makes you so different? What do you have that God didn't give? In other words, God gave you everything, but you act like you got it on your own. What's the matter with you? Verse 8, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Oh, without us, you have become kings. Do you hear the sarcasm? Oh, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Paul says, I think. You know what I think? I think God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. What is that? So verse 9, Paul paints the picture of the Roman general who rides into the city triumphantly after battle. There's a full military review. The victorious legions from battle march in lockstep. The citizens cheer. And at the end of the parade are the vanquished foes in rags and in chains. And there they are marched into the 18th. 15,000 seat Corinthian arena where they face the contemptuous crowds and a wretched death by execution. Paul says, we're fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We're weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless and we labor working with our own hands. Paul supported himself while he was in Corinth. He never took a 
dime or a denarius from of he, he never took money for his own expenses while he was in Corinth he always received offerings to help others and this irritated the Corinthians because they wanted to obligate him by their giving Paul says when reviled we bless when persecuted we endure when slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still, here it is, like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Scum. I looked that word up. It is that which is removed in the process of cleansing. Okay. When was the last time you changed your lint trap from your washing machine? Huh? The next time, which will probably be after this service, right? You're going to go down, you're going to check your washing machine, and you're going to check the lint trap. You know, it comes out of the hose, right? That's scum. Paul says that, that that's who we are in the eyes of the world. Myself, Apollos, Peter, all of us. Do you realize what you're dividing over? You are creating a celebrity cult over people whose lived experiences amount to Lent. Is that really a good idea, Paul says? Can you imagine being there in the house church as the, this letter was being publicly read? I mean, so if you've got 100 people and you've got a couple of house churches, the dynamic is going to be you know, smaller and there's not going to be the social distancing. It's not going to be in this huge room here. And it's not going to be that at all. I mean, it's going to be tight quarters. And uh, this letter is going to get read aloud and talk. And people are going to know who Paul's talking about. Right? Talk about squirming. Why such sarcasm? Paul, you know, Paul, Paul tells us, he, I, you know, I'm not trying to shame you, I'm trying to admonish you. And after this sarcastic scolding, Paul takes a deep breath and he calms his voice. He says, I'm doing this because I am your spiritual father. I'm a servant of the Lord. I'm scum of the world. But I'm the church's parent. I don't, I don't write these things to make you ashamed, verse 14, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You know what? You are, listen, you are wealthy more than this world knows if you have someone in your life who loves you enough that that person can admonish you the way Paul is admonishing these Corinthians, you know, that, that person, whoever that is, that person has your back, okay? Paul says, the reason why I'm doing this is I want you to become imitators of me. Isn't that how people become disciples of Jesus? Right? Isn't that how you became a Christian? You saw Christ in the life of someone that you loved and 
I mean, they just, the Holy Spirit's love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control, they just, just, they just bloomed and blossomed all over their lives. And he said, I want that. I want that. And the Corinthians, had they'd been Christians maybe five years. Before that, nothing. Pagan, perhaps a Hebrew background. They didn't have the content and resources that we have. They had, they had the Hebrew Bible. They had 1 Corinthians. They had the Holy Spirit. They had the memory of the Apostle Paul. They saw the life of Christ and the life of Paul. They saw a better way than proud, cutthroat, ruthless Rome. And Paul pleads with them to remember the example he set. So he sends the letter. He sends Timothy, his assistant, to trigger their memories of Paul's ways in Christ so that they will then be examples for others. So, so be imitators of me so that others will imitate you. You don't have to know everything in the Bible to lead someone to Christ, but you do need to live what you know. And this partisanship in our society must not infect this church or we will lose our witness. We must exemplify selfless, cruciform, cross-shaped love. And you can't model crucifixion if you're using the cross as a ladder to climb over someone else's back. You can't model mature parenting if you're childishly fighting over the toys. And so Paul, his parental volume, <laughs> he growls again in verses 18 to 21. Some of you are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. Oh, I'm coming all right. And when I get there, I'm going to do some evaluating myself. I'm going to find out who's peddling pastoral fame, who's publishing this magazine that's just talk. I don't do talk, Paul says. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in the power of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The power of Him who hung on a Roman cross like a servant. The power of Him who thirsted and was reviled and persecuted and spat upon and slandered like scum. The power of Him who loved and forgave and in whose weakness defeated the rulers of this age. Why? So that we could become heirs of the Father. It's the power of humble, self-sacrificing love, church, family, to disable pride. You must enable kingdom identity. Lord servant, world scum, church's parent. Amen. Amen. Do you know this past week, listen to this, I'm glad you're sitting down. Do you know that this past week, this was last Tuesday, the United States Senate all agreed on something? I know. Aren't you glad you're sitting down? The United States Senate passed legislation by unanimous consent, meaning there was no debate at all. Okay. For Army Sergeant First Class Alwyn Cash to posthumously receive the Medal of Honor. 
In October 2005, an improvised explosive device detonated under Sergeant Cash's Bradley fighting vehicle. According to the U.S. Army, the blast ignited the fuel cell on the vehicle, causing fuel to spew everywhere. The vehicle came to a stop and immediately erupted in flames. Sergeant Cash was initially slightly injured and drenched with fuel. Despite his condition, he bravely managed to get out of the gunner's hatch, crawl down the vehicle, and he got the driver out. The driver had been burned, and Sergeant Cash extinguished his flames. Six soldiers and a translator were in the back of the Bradley fighting vehicle. Flames had engulfed the entire vehicle from the bottom and were coming out of every portal. The squad leader inside the vehicle managed to open the hatch door to help the soldiers escape. And without regard for his personal safety, Sergeant Cash rushed to the back of the vehicle, reached into the hot flames, and started pulling out his soldiers. The flames gripped his fuel-soaked uniform. Flames quickly spread all over his body. Despite terrible pain, Sergeant Cash placed the injured soldier on the ground and returned to the burning vehicle to retrieve another burning soldier, all the while he was still on fire. During all this and with severe burns, Sergeant Cash bravely continued to take control of the chaos. His injuries were the worst as he suffered second and third degree burns over 72% of his body. Sergeant Cash saved six of his beloved soldiers. And weeks later, on November the 8th, 2005, Sergeant Cash died at a military hospital in San Antonio, Texas. His sister reflected on the sacrifice and she said, he did what he did because he loved his men. Now that is Jesus Christ. Selfless, cross-bearing, sacrificial love. And let me, let me say this. Sergeant Cash did this for his comrades. Christ did this for his enemies. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Church family, go thou and do likewise. Amen.